بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد مجيب رضزن سيسر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته I want to start off by posing a question when you look at the concept of water in the Quran, does it predominantly come as something positive or something negative? Positive. positive. Okay, fantastic. Can we think of any instances where it comes as something negative? Fantastic. That's one example. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed the people of Nuh and in fact with a difference of opinion, the people of the world with water. What else? Okay. Waves upon uh, waves upon layers. Right. Of darkness. So that's another example. There's an example in Surah Al-Kahf. Does anyone remember an example from Surah Al-Kahf? Allah relates water to Wadurib Lahum. Yeah, the example of the life of this world. And that's actually what I want to share my reflection, start off my reflection with today. Imam Al Qurtubi Rahimullah. He has a, a very nice reflection on this verse in Surah Al-Kahf where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, and give them the example of the life of this world, like the water that we sent down. So if we ponder and reflect upon this, why is the life of this world like water? So what, is, what are some of the consistencies in water that you would find in the life of this world? The first thing that you'll notice right off the bat is that you try to trap water in your hand, you'll never be able to do so. It always finds a way to escape. Similarly, the life of this world, you try to catch this dunya, it's always going to find a way to escape from you, meaning that you're not meant to hold on to it. Another example he gives, that the water that falls down, meaning that descends from the, the heavens, you'll notice that it has the ability to even like smooth out rock and flatten rock and even, you know, just take away the rock-like characteristics, it can, it can penetrate the rock. Similarly, uh, the life of this world, when it constantly attacks a person's iman, it will slowly but surely wear down a person's iman. That's another example that he gives. A third example that he gives is that when you look at uh, the essence of water, is that water is, is something that is, is transparent. It's something that is completely see-through. It's not something that, you know, is... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's not something that, that is... That is solid, right? Well, similarly to the life of this world, that it has one state and it's going to move on to the next state, meaning that it's, it's, not, it's not finite, right? So just like the state of water changes, similarly the life of this world, that it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, right? It's not something that remains forever. So I thought that was a very you know, interesting discussion that Imam Al-Qurtubi had. You guys can look it up you know, later on um, to, to further your own research. But as our discussion is on Tahara, I thought it would be an appropriate introduction to that. So we left off last time talking about two things, taharatun min al-hadath wa taharatun min al-khubath. Who remembers what these two terms mean? What is taharatun min al-hadath and what is taharatun min al-khubath? Who remembers? I know you were definitely here. I know Oman was definitely here. Liban, you were here as well, correct? No, it's the opposite. So hadith is when an event happens and impurity takes place. If someone goes to the bathroom, the unification, defecation, that is what hadith is. Passing of gas is hadith. Al-khubath is when something that is impure gets onto your clothes. 
So for example, you're walking on the street, you manage to walk on like dog feces or something like that. That is called khubath, meaning it's not an event that happened, but it is something that gets onto your clothes or onto your body or gets onto your body. Now, with that having been said, this leads us to our introduction in terms of the etiquettes that a Muslim should have when going to the bathroom and etiquette and ed etiquettes that Muslims should have when going to the bathroom. And we will be covering eight things bi ta'ala. The first thing we want to talk about is the issue of when a man is going to the bathroom, is he allowed to touch and hold his private parts with his right hand or not? Is he allowed to do so? Now, what we want to understand is starting off with the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he said, إِذَا بَادَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلَا يَأْخُذَنَّ ذَكَرَهُ بِيَمِينِهِ وَلَا يَسْتَنْجَ بِيَمِينِهِ وَلَا يَتَنَفَّسْ فِي الْإِنَاءِ When any of you urinates, he should not hold his penis in his right hand or clean it with his right hand. And when he is drinking, he should not breathe into the vessel. So clearly the Messenger of Allah وسلم, has given a prohibition over here. You should not do this. Now, the reason why the scholars differed on this issue of you know, cleaning one's uh, self with the right hand and touching oneself with the right hand is how do we understand the prohibitions of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, when it comes to matters of etiquette, when it comes to matters of etiquette. So when there's a clear prohibition in matters of the deen, then it's clear that, you know, that it is haram. There's no difference of opinion. The difference of opinion occurs when it comes to matters of etiquette. How should those prohibitions be understood? So you have a group of scholars that said any prohibition that the Prophet ﷺ gives, it should be understood as it is something that is haram until you have a proof to say that it is just something that is disliked. Another group of scholars, they said, we differentiate between ibadat and mu'amalat. Any prohibition that is in ibadat, we understood it, understand it as something that is haram. And any prohibition that is in mu'amalat, we understand that it is disliked until there's a proof to prove that it is something that is haram. It is something to, to that it, there's a, a secondary proof to prove that it's actually considered haram. So that is why the scholars differed on this issue. Now, to eliminate the difference of opinion, what we can say is to be on the safer side, no one should be using their right hands when going to the bathroom unless there's an absolute necessity, unless there's an absolute necessity. So a person has an, an illness with their left arm or they have uh, some sort of like, you know, tremors in their left hand. That's something that is understandable that you're allowed to use the right hand in that situation. But outside of that circumstance, the general rule is the right hand should not be used. The right hand should not be used. So that is the first etiquette that we will be talking about. That he should not, and she as well, should not be touching her private parts, or, and he should not be touching his private parts with the right hand, whether it is for the act of urination itself, or even for the act of cleansing, even for the act of cleansing. Getting into a secondary issue now. As a parent, your child needs to have themselves cleaned after they've defecated or urinated. Are you allowed using your right hand at that time? Or does the same ruling still apply that the left hand should be used? The left hand should be used. The general ruling is that the rulings that you apply to yourself apply to others as well. So meaning that just like you should not use your right hand for yourself, you should not use your right hand for others. You should not use your right hand for others. And you see many clear narrations of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum talking about the virtues of the right hand. So Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, he says, my right hand is for my face and my left hand is for cleansing myself. 
Then Uthman radiallahu anhu, he said, ever since I gave the bi'ah to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, I have never lied and have never used my right hand to touch my private parts, to touch my private parts. So this shows us that the right hand, it has virtue and that virtue should be respected and it should be only be used for good things. It should only be used for good things. Likewise, you have the hadith of Hafsa radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. She says that the Prophet used his hand, right hand for eating, drinking, making wudu, getting dressed, giving and taking things. And he used to use his left hand for everything else. And he used to use his left hand for everything else. Meaning that anything that can be considered positive and respectful, the right hand should be used. And everything else, the left hand should be used. Can we think of an act of cleansing that would be an exception to this rule? What is an act of cleansing that would be the exception to this rule? Fantastic. So the using of the miswak, the scholars differed. Does it take the same ruling that one should use the left hand when making the miswak? Or since one is using an external tool and there's not impurity there, and inshallah there's no impurity in your mouth, you know, then you don't need to use the, the left hand. It is permissible to use the right hand. The majority, they went towards that, what the general rule is, in terms of purification, you use the left hand. You use the left hand. Now, you can counter that though, that the Prophet wasallam, when he used to take water into his mouth within wudu, he used his right hand. And likewise, when uh, he used to put water into his nose, he used the right hand. So in those certain situations where there's no fear of impurity, then there's nothing wrong with using the right hand. There's nothing wrong with using the right hand. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, it is perfectly fine to use the right hand when one is using the miswak, when one is using the miswak. Etiquette number two. Is it permissible to urinate while standing or does one need to sit down? And if so, what is the reasoning behind that? Now this whole discussion revolves around two hadith. It revolves around two hadith. The first of them is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha narrated by At-Tirmidhi. Qalat Aisha radiallahu anha, Man haddathakum anna al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kana yabul qa'iman fala tusaddiquhu. Ma kana yabulu illa qa'idah rawahu At-Tirmidhi. That whoever tells you that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to urinate standing, do not believe him. He only used to urinate sitting down. Now what's interesting about this narration, is that Imam Al-Tirmidhi, he says, this is the most authentic hadith that we have on this topic. This is the most authentic hadith that we have on this topic. However, when you look inside Sahih Al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, you find the narration of Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman, and Hudayfa and Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, ata sibatatu qawmin fabala qa'ima. That Hudayfa radiallahu anhu who narrated that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam came to a garden belonging to some people and he urinated standing up and he urinated standing up. So how do we reconcile between these two narrations? What principles are we going to use for for this? There must be a reasoning for that specific scenario. There must be logic behind it. Otherwise, yeah, that's what I. So what is the foundation and what is the exception? Let's start off with that. Sitting down is the foundation. Why? Because his wife said so, and like he spends most of his time like 
Fantastic. So that is the principle that the scholars used that in, man in matters of intimate detail, the narrations of the wives of the Prophet will take precedence. And Aisha radiallahu anha, she's establishing a, a, the general principle that she never saw the Prophet standing up. And that this is like a, a myriad and, and plethora of times. So that is what we establish as the foundation. So now this is the exception to the rule. But what does the exception to the rule teach us? What do we derive from the exception to the rule? It is permissible to do so, with cause or without cause. That is what can be deduced for sure. So uh, the, the issue of you know, splashback is always an issue that one should be concerned about. But can we give legal rulings now that to, stay, to, to, to urinate sitting down is something that is obligatory? And to do it standing up without just cause is impermissible? Can we? Can we do that? No, we can't. And that is why in this situation we can say one is definitely better than the other. But we need to look at the reasoning behind this commandment or this action. Not commandment, but behind this action. The Prophet is obviously showing us the fear of splashback. That you know, when a person is standing up, there's a much greater chance that the urine will splash back upon one's clothes or upon one's body. And that is why it is better to do so sitting down. It is better to do so sitting down. And the narration of Hudayfah it teaches us that it is permissible to do so with the following conditions. One is that one does, uh, is able to protect themselves from any splashback. One is able to protect themselves from uh, any splashback. And number two is that if there's a, uh, a cause or a reason for them to do so. Ibn Hajar when he talks about this narration, he talks about several reasons why the Prophet wouldn't have done this. That why the Prophet didn't sit down that day. From them is that this was in the old age of the Prophet and bending down was more difficult as was bending his back. So the Prophet urinated standing up. Number two is that the Prophet perhaps he saw some sort of impurity on the ground and that is why he feared that if he bent down his garments that might touch the ground would become impure. And that is why the Prophet didn't actually sit down on the ground that day. Didn't sit down on the ground that day. So the general rule we want to establish in understanding fiqh is al-jam'u awla min al-tarjih. To reconcile between narrations is more preferable than to give preference to one narration over another. So one should not say that the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha is given preference over the hadith of Hudayfa. Likewise, the, uh, the, the opposite. Because in these situations, there is a circumstance. We should try to understand what are the circumstances, what is the foundation, what is the exception. If you're able to establish these principles in any chapters of fiqh, what is the foundation, what is the exception, it will make understanding fiqh so much easier. It will make understanding fiqh so much easier. So now, some of the scholars have gone to the opinion that it is impermissible to urinate while standing. It is impermissible to urinate while standing. Based upon the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha and the fact that you know, it's very difficult to protect oneself from splashback while standing. But again, is there any proof to indicate that? And the answer to that is no. The answer to that is no. So that is the second etiquette that one should try their utmost best to urinate while sitting down. And if there's a reason to urinate while standing up, then it is permissible to do so. It is permissible to do so. You know, a, a practical valid you know, example in day-to-day -day life, as Muslims, we shouldn't be using the urinals. I mean, I find that a very disgusting habit. Uh, one, because of the issue of splashback. Two, it's such a, like a, 
and it's not only hygienic, but like you're standing next to someone as you're going to the bathroom. They're, 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 the, the sense of modesty is completely taken away. So, you know, that's uh, you know, something that definitely shouldn't be done. But how about if you're in a stall now and you're using them in the bathroom and the toilet seat just doesn't look hygienic at all. Does that mean you have to use the bathroom, you have to sit down on that unhygienic toilet seat? The answer to that is no, you don't need to do that. However, just be very, very careful that you know you protect yourself and pre prevent yourself from splashback. A good tip I learned very, very early on is to carry um, wet wipes with you. Wet wipes come in very, very handy. So they, they, they purify the area around you. Like if you ever need to use a toilet seat, just wipe it off. You use it then. Likewise, if you're in a situation where there's no toilet paper, there's no water, what do you do? Those wet wipes come in very, very handy as well. So if you know you're going to work every single day, it's a good idea to keep them in your backpack, keep them in your bag, or just keep them in your pocket. And they definitely do come in very, very handy. They do come in very, very handy. Etiquette number three. A person should conceal himself from the sight of others. A person should conceal himself from the sight of others. Al-Mughir ibn Shu'ba he says, I was with the Prophet on a journey when he felt the need to answer the call of nature and he went far, far away till that I could not make out who he was. Till I could not make out who he was. So this shows us that the Prophet and this goes back to the issue of the urinal, that when you're using the bathroom, it shouldn't be in front of the public sphere, right? You should conceal yourself from doing so. And that's why the Prophet went so far that he was unable to be seen from the public eye. He was unable to be seen from the public eye. And this directly ties into the issue of the urinal. Etiquette number four. A person should not uncover his aura until he has squatted close to the ground because this is more concealing. Now this is obviously, you're out in the desert and if you're wearing an izar like the Prophet used to wear regularly. So if an individual that's wearing an izar and he's going to the bathroom, he should not uplift his izar until he has squatted down. Why? What is the reasoning behind that? To conceal one's aura even more. You should not, un you should not uh, unconceal your aura until there's an absolute necessity to do so. Not conceal your, necessity, uh, your aura until there's an absolute necessity to do so. Number five. To say the adhkar of entering the bathroom. To say the adhkar of entering the bathroom. And there's two adhkar that we want to discuss when we're entering and one when we are leaving from the bathroom. In terms of entering the bathroom, two things have been narrated that one should say. One of them, there's a slight weakness. One of them is authentic. The starting off with one that has a slight weakness is entering by saying Bismillah. Entering the bathroom by saying Bismillah. There's a slight weakness in this hadith, but it has been narrated in the books of Adab that one should say Bismillah before entering the bathroom. Why should he do so? Because the Prophet ﷺ said in a narration, and this is where the weakness is, that the covering between the jinns and the humans is the saying of Bismillah. The covering between the jinns and the humans is the saying of Bismillah. This is further substantiated by which hadith? Which ahadith substantiate this concept? Who can tell me? There's a hadith that, or a, a, a topic that almost all of us should know that, you know, strengthens this opinion. When else do we say Bismillah? Before eating and? Changing clothes. Okay, and changing clothes and? Okay, and even something more simpler than that. When else do you say Bismillah? Entering your house. 
Entering your house, fantastic. We're entering your house. So the general rule is that you say Bismillah in all of these occurrences, but in particular, the Prophet mentions two of them that you know are joined together. One is eating, and one is entering the house. That the one that says Bismillah before entering, then the Shayateen have no place to stay that night. The one that says Bismillah before eating, then the Shayateen have no share in his food that night. So while this hadith is weak, the scholars said that it could be used before entering the bathroom as this is uh, a barrier between the shayateen and the human being. So there's a difference of opinion on this authenticity, but it is uh, applicable in the situation due to the other narrations that we can bring along to substantiate it. Now, what is not differed over is the narration of the Prophet ﷺ where he used to, to say, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubathi wal-khaba'ith That, oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from the various types of jinn. They differed in terms of what is khubath and what is khaba'ith. They said that one is a male type of jinn, the other one is female type of jinn. They said one is uh, a harmful jinn and one is the, the jinn that you know, likes to hang around impure places. These are some of the opinions that are there. We're not going to get into that right now. But Khubath and Khabath are referring to the different types of jinns or they're referring to impurity and the jinn. Those are the two uh, predominant opinions. So that is what one should say when he enters the bathroom. That is what one should say when he enters the bathroom. Now, why should he say this when they enter the bathroom? Why do we say this when we enter the bathroom? They couldn't see him while he's inside. If they say that, they couldn't see him. They couldn't see him. But what is so significant about the bathroom that, he should, that we should say it? Fantastic. That the jinn and the shayateen, they like to hang around in, pure pla in impure places. They like to hang around in impure places. In fact, something that you'll come to, to see later on when we talk about uh, how to clean yourself when going to the bathroom is that it is impermissible to use you know, hardened animal feces. The Prophet prohibited using this due to the fact, and using bones, due to the fact that it is food for the jinn. Food for the jinn. So any place that there might be impurity, you know, there's a, a, a high chance that this is the area of the jinn and shayateen. So particularly when entering the bathroom, one should say that dua. One should say that dua to the best of their ability. So now a question arises. Does one living in a, in a modern day context where we have our sink, we have our bathtub, and then you have like the toilet inside, one confinement in one room, when should one actually say the, would say the dua? When should one actually say the dua? Entering the door. Entering the door. Entering the washroom door. Using the toilet. Using the toilet itself. The four walls, as soon as you cross those four walls. Okay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but it should definitely be said before one starts using the toilet. Before one starts using the toilet. And the reason behind this is a lot of this will have to do with why is the person actually going to that room. So for example, if you're just going to wash your hands or making to make wudu, do you have to say this dua? No, it wasn't legislated from the Prophet that he would say this dua before he would make wudu or entering the place where he would make wudu. It was only legislated when he would actually go and use the toilet. So it's important to keep in mind one's intention as well as the area that he's using. So if you're going to use the toilet, then you can say it as you're entering into the, passing the door or just about you before you're using the toilet. And I actually believe that to be more preferable. However, if you're only going to wash your hands or to make wudu or wash your face or even take a shower, then this dua is not legislated at that time. That dua is not legislated at that time. Now, what do we say when we leave the bathroom? Ghufranak. The Prophet used to say Ghufranak when he used to leave the, uh, leave the toilets. Ibn al-Qayyim, he comments on this. 
that why would the Prophet seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while he is leaving the toilet? While he's leaving the toilet, he mentions something very interesting. It is due to the fact that this is one of the very few moments in the life of the Prophet that he could not keep his tongue busy with the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That he could not keep his tongue busy with the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He mentions another reason that the Prophet teaches us this, that we are seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for not being as grateful for the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as we should be. Like if you think about the internal systems that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put into play in terms of how we perspire, how we breathe, how our heart beats, how our blood circulates, how our food digests. These are all miraculous things that are, are by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we don't even fathom, we don't even understand. And you know, we're definitely not grateful for it because we don't see uh, you know, regularly or even contemplate regularly. So that is why we should seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed you know, something that is harmful and toxic to our bodies to be eliminated and you know, we had to put no effort into it. We had to put no effort into it. So that is why uh, a second reason why that Ibn al-Qayyim mentions that the Prophet used to teach us to say ghufranak when we leave the bathroom, when we leave the bathroom. So that was etiquette number six. Now we move on to uh, etiquette number seven. Etiquette number seven. You should be extremely careful to make sure that there's no impurity left on your body after you use the bathroom. There should be no impurity left on your body after you use the bathroom. Particularly when urinating, we already talked about this. This is one of the reasons why the adab of the qabr takes place. In Ibn Majah, the Prophet actually mentions in the hadith with a slight weakness in it, that the most common cause for punishment in the grave is not protecting oneself from urine. And it's completely different from the hadith of the two people that were being punished in the grave. One of them was being punished for not taking care of themselves when urinating. The other one was being punished for spreading namima between the people, meaning spreading tales between the people to cause them to fight, right? So the, 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 the process of not protecting oneself from urinating, it is a great cause of being punished in the grave. And we seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from that. So now, one should be extremely careful to make sure that there's no impurity that comes back onto the individual and extra caution and effort should be made to purify oneself if that is the case. Now, a fine line needs to be drawn over here. That when a man goes to the bathroom, he's encouraged that after he's finished using the bathroom, he wipes himself. Now, the more he touches his private organ at that time, the more he'll notice that urine might you know, trickle out. So the more he's trying to wipe himself or clean himself, the more he notices that urine might trickle out. So to what extent does he keep trying to clean himself to make sure that no more urine is left inside? And this actually leads into like psychological disorders where people have like obsessive compulsive disorders where they'll all go to urinate in the bathroom, yet they'll end up spending like half an hour in the bathroom just to make sure because that there's no more urine coming out of their, their private organs. Now that fine line needs to be drawn that when a person is confident, they're comfortable with the fact that you know, more than likely there's no more urine left inside and there's no urine that's going to trickle out. At that time, they, don't, they can stop cleansing themselves. They don't have to go that extra mile. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, he actually had an interesting quote about this. He says, the private organ uh, uh, of the male is like the udder of the cow. That the more you try to, to pull on it, the more the liquid is going to come out. 
So once a person feels comfortable that he's urinated everything his blood his his bladder is inside his bladder, there's no need to keep going you know back and forth to get that extra urine out. You shouldn't force yourself to uh, eliminate that extra urine because it will keep coming out, right? So once you feel confident that you know what I, I've emptied out as much as I can, you don't need to go that extra mile to take out the rest of the urine. You don't need to go that extra mile to go uh, to take out the rest of that urine. Now we get to etiquette number seven. How many times should one clean themselves once they've used the bathroom? And what is the reasoning behind that? So we have two hadith that we want to look at. We have two hadith that we want to look at. First is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, where she says the Prophet sallallahu used to wash himself three times. Used to wash himself three times. Then the second is the hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, when any of you cleans himself, let him use an odd number. Let him use an odd number. Okay? So one hadith, the Prophet is very explicit with three. Another narration, Abu Huraira's, it says just use an odd number. So now, going back to the general ruling over here, when it comes to etiquette, then the general ruling is not mandatory, but something that is encouraged to do so. Now what is the goal that we're trying to achieve? The goal is that we're trying to achieve cleanliness. So as long as cleanliness has been achieved, then you have fulfilled your goal, right? Whether that is in one cleaning, in two cleanings, in three cleanings, four cleanings, five cleanings, whatever you need, right? Depending on, you know, how, you know, dysfunctional your, your digestive system may be, you may need to do more than that. But the ruling over here is, we're trying to achieve cleanliness. Sometimes it will be achieved by one, sometimes it will be achieved by more than one. However, what are recommendations over here? Recommendations are that if you have finished cleaning yourself, go that extra one to make it an odd number, to fulfill the command of the Prophet ﷺ. So even though it is just an etiquette, one should still go that extra uh, way to make it more clean and to fulfill the command of the Prophet ﷺ. Now this leads us into a controversial topic only amongst Indians and Pakistanis for the most part. And that is, can you clean yourself with toilet paper only? And the answer to that is yes. It is permissible to just use toilet paper. If you don't use any water, it is perfectly fine. However, you still want to try to achieve as much cleanliness as possible. As much cleanliness as possible. The Prophet ﷺ, he actually used to use rocks back in the day. Now one may think, you know, how can you use a rock to clean your posterior? Isn't it going to be painful? It's not the rock that you're thinking of. These rocks were very smooth and very flat. It's almost like as if it was thick paper. That's what it used to be like. And that is what they used to clean themselves with. So in this day and age, you're in the public toilet, you don't have a water bottle, you don't have you know, one of those cool uh, istinja bags that they have now, you don't have a lota with you, there's no bucket. What do you do in that situation? You don't need to carry water in your hand to go to the bathroom. Just use toilet paper, it's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And then you'll notice like other weird things that Muslims do. Questions that I get all the time, particularly while flying. You've gone to use the bathroom in the, in the plane, you're not sure, are you completely clean? So let me put some extra toilet paper after I'm done using it between my underwear and uh, myself. And I always find that, you know, to be very problematic. Because if there's any impurity there, 
it's on you, right? The, the fact that it's on the toilet paper now, it's still between your clothes and you know, be praying in that situation is problematic. So you haven't really made a difference. Psychologically, I can understand why you may feel cleaner, but in terms of a hukum shara'i, in terms of a religious ruling, you haven't really made things better. So just go that extra mile to clean yourself, make sure you're clean, make sure you feel comfortable with that. Whether it is water, whether it is toilet paper, whether it is, you know, you're out in nature, you're camping, you can use leaves, you can use, um, you know, pretty much anything you want with the exception of a few things. That the Prophet ﷺ prohibited the usage of bones and he prohibited the usage of, of hardened feces of animals, right? So sometimes you'll find something that looks like a rock, but it's like horse feces, right? Horse feces tends to look like rocks. In that situation, that you're not allowed to use. And he tells us why. He tells us why, because it is the food for the jinn. Now, how about using leftover food? And I'll give you like a clear example of this. How about using things like the skin of an orange? You're out in nature, there's no leaves anywhere, there's no rocks, there's no water. All you have is your orange that you have with you. Can you use the skin of the orange? Actually, let's discuss the issue of using the orange itself. The actual orange itself, you're not allowed to use. Why? Because if we're meant to respect the food of the jinn, then the food of the ants is min babi awla. Then the food of the human beings deserves to be respected even more. How about the skin though? The skin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, it is something that is permissible to use just based upon the fact that it's not, it is not something that is normally consumed. Right? Some people might use it on like shavings on cake or like f adding flavor to things, but it's not something that, con that is consumed normally. So based upon that, using something like that would be fine. Or likewise, you have lettuce that has gone bad. You know, that's all you have. That's perfectly fine to use. There's nothing wrong with that. So in that situation, you know, you can use whatever you have available, but one should not be using food or bones or the, the, the dung of animals or the dung of animals. So summarizing this discussion over here, the general ruling is you can use whatever you want to purify yourself. However, it should be the, to a degree that you are comfortable that you are now pure. It can be water, it can be uh, tissue paper or toilet paper, it can be something other than that. Number two is that it should be a number which is odd. So if once is good enough for you, that's fine. If it's two, try to take it up to three. If it's four, try to take it up to five. You try to make it odd. The third etiquette, you should not be using which hand? Your right hand. Do not use your right hand to clean yourself. You should be using your left hand instead. Use your left hand instead. Any questions so far on anything I've mentioned? Because I know there's a lot of information. But because we had a shortened halakha last time and we're going to have a shortened halakha today, and we need to have another halakha after this as well. I want to go through as much as I can. Any questions? Go ahead. Sorry? So that, that's the thing, that's what I was saying. In a modern day context, you, we, we will separate the toilet from the bathroom itself. So when one is using the toilet, you shouldn't say Bismillah while using the toilet. However, if you're just using the sink, there's nothing wrong with saying Bismillah even though you're within the confines of the four walls. Wallahu a'lam. Any other questions? Go ahead. Yeah. So in terms of yeah, that that, that is difficult to use. So in in that circumstance, Allahu Alam, I don't know. Yeah, because if you're like using a water bottle or like a lotar or anything, right? So yeah. That's a different case because you can't take with 
be three times like filling up water that's like too no much. that's too much yeah, yeah. no I, I Allahu Adam I, I don't know what, what would be done in that situation but I'm assuming it's in terms of the wipes that would take place Allahu Adam yeah but istijmar I mean istijmar can be used interchangeably as well it can be used like istinjar can mean both so can istijmar even though the predominant meaning of istijmar is that it is using the, the solid substance. The last thing we'll mention, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He revealed about the people of Quba that they were beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the books of tafsir, it mentions why? Because they combined between istijmar and istinja. They combined between the usage of solid uh, cleansing as well as water cleansing. That they used to use rocks along with water. So they used to go that extra mile in terms of purification. And uh, this is uh, from the verse, and this is revealed to the, uh, about the people of Quba that you, they used to go that extra step in purifying themselves. So this means if a person can go that extra mile between combining between tissue paper and water, then this is something that is preferable to do so. Something that is preferable to do so. Yeah, go ahead. The sandstone? Yeah, that's perfectly fine. No problem, inshallah. Just make sure not to cut yourself. That might be a bit sharp. Um, and then the, the last thing that we will mention before we move on to, to the next topic is um, actually, no, two things, three things that we will mention before moving on to the next topic. Number one is that one should not uh, urinate or defecate in public places. By public places, meaning that places where people will pass by. So for example, it's 4 o'clock in the morning and you're out in the park. I don't know what you're doing in the park at 4 o'clock in the morning, but let's just say you are. And you need to use the bathroom. You're like, okay, let me urinate you know, next to a tree. Daytime comes, this is a place where people come and have their picnics and you know, you've just urinated there or you've defecated there. Then you know, that's problematic. The Prophet prohibited um, urinating and defecating in places that are commonly used by people. Back in the days, it was the public pathways. So even though it's late at night, there's no one on the pathway, it doesn't mean you can do, go and take care of your business in those public pathways. On a, on a funnier note, um, I was reading something on Facebook. I think this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is on BuzzFeed a, a couple of days back, where uh, a young man, 18 years old, he was arrested. What was he arrested for? He had gone out uh, partying, and on his way back home, he urgently needed to use the bathroom for number two. So he finds a house that is abandoned and he goes into the house and he notices that the, the, the toilet isn't working, it doesn't flush. So what does he decide to do? He decides to use the tub instead. So he goes inside the tub. I don't know how people found out, but he was arrested for defecating on, on private property inside of someone's tub. Now you tie that in, anywhere that the public generally uses, you don't want to be using. The next point we want to mention is that the person that is using the bathroom and the person that sees the person using the bathroom, they should not exchange salams. So for example, you know, if you're in the bathroom and you, you know, the door is closed and someone at home is like, Hey, X, Y, and Z, I'm leaving house now, Salam alaikum. You should not respond to their salams while you're using the bathroom. Likewise, the person that is leaving should not have said salams while you're leaving the bathroom. Either they should wait 
or leave a note or say something else, but they should not convey the salams. Because the Prophet actually prohibited Jabir. He said, do not give me salams if you ever see me answering the call of nature. Do not give me salams if you see me answering the call of nature. And certain times when the Prophet was seen giving the call of nature, the, uh, the, the Sahaba that had just accepted Islam, they would say, Salaamu Alaikum. The Prophet wouldn't respond to them, but of not wanting to offend them, he would simply just raise his hand. He would simply just raise his hand to give them the Salaam. So the etiquette is that one should not respond or give Salaams to someone that is using the, the bathroom, nor should one respond if one is using the uh, bathroom as well. And the last thing that we will mention is you're out in public, you're out in a forest, and you see a hole or you see a crack in the mountains. Should you urinate or defecate in those areas? And the answer is no. Do not urinate or defecate inside of holes or in areas that are cracked between mountains or inside caves or anything of that nature. The Prophet said that these are the homes of the jinn. These are the homes of the jinn. So that should not be done. Okay, so now these are just some of the etiquettes when going to the bathroom. I think most of us knew all of these things. We learned them when we were in Sunday school. Now let us actually get down to some of the fiqh that needs to be discussed. The ruling on facing the qibla or putting one's back towards the qibla when answering the call of nature. Okay, there are three opinions on this issue. Opinion number one is that one should not face nor put one's back towards the qibla whether you are inside or outside, meaning that you're inside confined walls or whether you're outside in public. The proof for this statement is the hadith of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari anhu. When one of you goes to relieve yourselves or urinate, then do not face the Qibla or turn your back to it. Instead, turn to the direction of the east or west. Turn to the direction of the east or west. Who is this hadith being applied to? Who is the Prophet I'm addressing over here? Don't put, don't face, nor turn your back towards the north and the south. So who is it being referred to? The opposite. So the, the, they're, they're in Medina right now, and the south is Mecca. The south is Mecca, and then the, the, if they were to face the other way, they shouldn't put their front or back towards that direction. So face east and west instead. So the Prophet ﷺ is telling the people of Medina this, that they should not face towards Mecca, but rather turn towards east and west. And the Prophet ﷺ didn't specify whether one is inside or outside in this situation. This was the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. Opinion number two, it is permissible to face the Qibla or put one's back towards the Qibla whether one is inside or out. This was the opinion of the Zahiriyyah. The opinion of the Zahiriyyah. Then you have opinion number three, which is the opinion of the Maliki Madhab, the Hanbali Madhab, and the Shafi'i Madhab. They said, if one is inside, then it is not a problem to face or put one's back towards the Qibla. However, if one is outside, then one should not put one's face or back towards the Qibla. What is the reasoning behind this? What is the reasoning behind this? First is the hadith of Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhu. He narrated, I ascended the roof of the house of Hafsa radiallahu anha and saw the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam sitting on two bricks facing Jerusalem for relieving himself. Facing Jerusalem, relieving himself. So the Qibla is towards the south and Jerusalem is towards the north. Meaning that he had his back towards the Kaaba or the Qibla and, the Prophet, and the, 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 there was no harm in, in doing this. And he saw the Prophet ﷺ doing this. Okay? Then 
That is the hadith of Abdullah bin Umar, and this is from the, the, the rooftop. So that is the proof of the Zahiriya. Now, the proof for the majority over here, they said that the general ruling is whenever there's something between you, it acts as a barrier between you and anything else. So for example, in Salah, the general ruling is you should not walk in front of someone that is praying. However, if they put a sutra in front of themselves, you can now, now walk in front of them praying, meaning that their salah has been protected. So using this logic of something being protected, meaning that there's a barrier in between that will protect it, it is now permissible to do so. How did the Hanafiya respond to this? Who can think of something clever that they would, would have responded with? Yes? Well, if you're praying and you, it counts that you can pray towards Mecca, but there's a sutra, I guess, in front of you. Yeah. Okay, no, so now you're responding to the Hanafi. I'm saying how would the Hanafi respond to this? So you're saying what the majority is saying. Oh, how would the Hanafi Madhab respond to the claim of the majority that because you put a barrier in between, then all of a sudden it's fine now? Can anyone think of anything? Going once? Going twice? Praying outside? How so? No. So the, what the, the Hanafis would respond to this by saying is that it is impossible that someone is, you know, urinating or defecating outside and in the direction of the Qibla, yet a tree does not come in his pathway or a building does not come in his pathway. It might not be in one mile, it might be 50 miles or 100 miles or 1,000 miles. Something will eventually come in your pathway. Yet the Prophet still gave the prohibition, don't do it facing the Qibla. And honestly, I found this to be a, a very strong argument. It is a very strong argument that the Prophet while knowing that a tree would come in the way or a house would come in the way or a building would come in the way, he still gave this prohibition, meaning that it should be not taken lightly, it should not be taken lightly. So now, our conclusion for this summary is that when you're outside, definitely do not face the Qibla or put your back towards the Qibla. What does this teach us? Pay very close attention to which direction you're in the urinating or going to the bathroom. That if there, there's an option, you should not face or put your back towards the Qibla. Pay very close attention to this. This also shows us that Muslims in the past, they always knew which direction the Qibla was in. So that they could know, you know where they were praying, but also know when to use the bathroom, which directions not to face. When you're inside, there's a lot more flexibility. There's a lot more flexibility. As you can see, the majority was of the opinion that as long as there's a barrier, then this prohibition uh, does not need to be uh, accommodated to. However, the argument of the Hanafi is still strong. So if you're in a situation where you can choose not to put your back or to face the Qibla while using the bathroom, then that should definitely be done. That should definitely be done. Now we talk about... Um, Skins of dead animals. Skins of dead animals. Why is this something that is relevant to us? Because a lot of our clothes, a lot of our shoes will be made from skins of dead animals. If you own a leather jacket, more than likely it comes from the skin of a dead animal. You own any type of fancy dress shoes or, or, or formal shoes, more than likely they're made from a skin of an animal. So with that being said, what is the ruling on using those skins? Are they considered pure or impure? What makes them pure? Now, there are actually seven opinions on this issue. Seven opinions. How is it possible to have seven opinions on this issue? We will find out inshallah. Okay? So opinion number one, we'll go through this rather quickly. You just need to remember the conclusion at the end inshallah. So opinion number one, opinion of Imam Ahmad and Imam Malik, 
any skin of an animal cannot be purified if that animal has not been slaughtered properly, if that animal has not been slaughtered properly. So meaning, you know, the, the, the skins that we find on, in clothing and in shoes, more than likely those animals haven't been slaughtered, they've just been, you know, killed and their skins have been taken. So that is what they're talking about. So animals that haven't been slaughtered and the skins that have been taken, then those skins are not permissible. This is Imam Ahmad and Imam Malik. Opinion number two is Awlawza'i and Ibn Mubarak. Any animal that you're allowed to eat, whether it has been slaughtered or not, their skin is permissible to use. Their skin is permissible to use. Ibn Mubarak and Al-Awza'i. And this is the opinion we actually give preference to. So that is opinion number two. That is the opinion you should try to remember. That is the opinion you should try to remember. We'll go through the proofs of it uh, right now. Allah's Messenger وسلم, saw a dead goat which had been given in charity to, a freed, uh, to the freed uh, slave Maymuna. Allah's Messenger وسلم, asked, why do you not make use of its skin? She responded, it is dead. Upon this he said, it is the eating of the dead animal which is prohibited. It is the eating of the dead animal which is prohibited. Sahih Muslim. Meaning that the usage of the skin of an animal that could be slaughtered but wasn't, is still permissible to use. It is only the meta, the meat of that animal that is not permissible to consume. So based upon that, it is permissible to use. And Ibn Abbas anhuma, he has further narrations from various ayats to talk about this as well. Opinion number three. Imam al-Shafi'i, Ali bin Abi Talib, and Abdullah bin Mas'ud. It is permissible to use any skin of an animal with the exception of dog and pig skin and anything related to it. So the dog family would be like wolves, foxes, and the pig family would be like boars, right? This is opinion number three. This is opinion number three, okay? Opinion number four, any skin can be used with the exception of pig skin. This is the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa, the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa. Opinion number five, one can use any skin with the exception of pig skin and dog skin, but all the skins that are used, it is not allowed to use the interior. However, one can use the exterior, okay? So meaning you have the, the, the skin of an animal, the outside of it, you can use. However, the inside of it, that is, what not, that is what should not be used. That is what should not be used. This was the opinion. Uh, that was an opinion in the Maliki Madhab. Opinion number six from the students of Imam Abu Hanifa Abu Yusuf, all skins can be used both inside and out. So all skins can be used, pigs and dogs included. Opinion number seven, the opinion of a Zuhri, all skins can be used but only for dry things and not wet. What does that mean? What is something wet that you cannot use it for? What is something they would use it? Water skin. Uh, I just gave it away. They would use skins to transport water. So you're saying that you can use it for dry things, but anything that would cause it to get wet and cause the wetness to rub off onto you or to onto your clothing, then that is something that could not be used. That is something that could not be used. So just as a simple rule, when we're talking about what is pure and impure, as long as that animal can be slaughtered, then that that skin is permissible to be used. So what does that generally mean? That Pig skins, dog skins, carnivorous skins, like crocodiles and alligators and stuff like that. These sort of skins are not permissible to use. Anything else, cows, goats, sheep, anything else you can think of that's permissible to consume and slaughter, those skins can be used. Those skins can be used. Any questions on that? So we can't wear like crocodile leather shoes or belts or leather or? Like 
like leather belts for Oh yeah, no, you, those should not be consumed at all because the, 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 the crocodile and the alligator are not permissible to consume. So I mean, there's... In the form of shoes either? Even in the form of shoes, even in the form of shoes. You know, I'll, I'll tell you something interesting. One of my favorite brand of shoes is Clark's Shoes. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't remember how many years ago they transferred their manufacturing from England to China. Mm -hmm. And when they did so, that changed the type of leather they would use inside the shoes. They started using pig, uh, pig skin inside of their shoes. Now, the way you quantify pig skin from any other skin is the, the usage of three dots. So if you see the, the, a pattern of three dots on, on skin, mm -hmm. that's pig skin. There's no shadow of a doubt. You can't hide that. So anytime those three dots are there, no, that's pig skin that's being used. You, you, you can't use those shoes because the Prophet you know, pro prohibited the using of that. It's like a repeating three dots? It's almost as if there's like a triangle. Like you don't even need a, a microscope, you just look at the skin and you'll see the three dots everywhere. So now if you pay attention to the inside of, of Clark's shoes, most of them that are made in China have the three dots on them because they're using pig skin. What about synthetic leather? So anything that's synthetic doesn't apply. Okay. Yeah, because it's man-made. Yeah. yeah. Any? Go ahead. Does the amount uh, matter? The amount? That's going to be like one strange shirt or pants or something, man. Like, how would that even work? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how practical that is, but in that situation, then the, the, the general ruling would be it should be a very insignificant amount. Right? Whatever we would consider insignificant, that's the amount it should be. But still, it's better to avoid those situations and circumstances if possible. But realistically speaking, I don't think they do that. That they would combine between like, you know, cow leather and like pig leather and stuff. I don't think that's, that's very common. So now how about this? American football. What material is it made of? Or was it made of at one time? Pigskin, right? Is it permissible to play with pigskin? Why not? No? <laughs> so wearing it is one thing, because you, you obviously you can't pray in it, and you shouldn't have you know, your day-to-day -day lifestyle in it, but what about playing with it? Yeah, and that, that is what the majority of, of scholars even went to. That even, you know, transporting pig skin, even though you're not using it, you're just transporting it, it is something that should be abstained from. It is something that should be abstained from. They play with gloves, that becomes like the exception. Actually, no, quarterbacks don't wear gloves, man. The receivers wear the gloves, the quarterback doesn't wear the gloves. So it's permissible to be a receiver, but not a quarterback. <laughs> Right, right. So, the, I mean, the key ones you want, I mean, the good thing is dogs don't have leather, they just have skin. So most clothing and shoes will not be made of dog skin. The other exception is the pig, and we just mentioned right now how to identify the pig skin. The pig skin has that pattern. You, yeah, you have to identify it. No, no, it, it, there's no way to eliminate it, right? There's no way to eliminate this pattern because that's just how the skin is. So you'll always see the pattern of the three dots on it. So you'll always, pig skin will always have a pattern of three dots on it. So any shoe that is made out of pig skin, you'll always see a pattern of three dots on it. Okay? As for what other animals would have leather, I'm not too sure. I, I've heard crocodile leather. That's, that's, that's the other example. Yeah. So the, the crocodile leather... Uh, and this is something that uh, we'll, we'll look into further. But when we're doing our, our fickle food and clothing, we differentiated between the crocodile and the alligator. 
The reason of the differentiation was one has its natural habitat in water, the other one has its natural habitat on land. Yeah. So whichever has its natural habitat in water is permissible. Crocodile lives in water. Then whoever has its natural <laughs> habitat on land, which is probably the alligator, then that's the that, that is the one that's not permissible to use, okay. right? Because that's based on the hadith of Prophet that whoever has water, you know, as its main domain, is permissible. Wallahu taala. Khair. Yeah. Like in Australia, uh, was there once in Australia about the like camel? Something. They never slaughtered. They killed by electricity shock, and they make very good lever from the camel. Okay. And for sure they make clothes, shoes, or whatever. In that situation, it's allowed to wear it. Fantastic. So the principle we established, the camel, are we allowed to slaughter it and eat it? So if, uh, if I did, you know, the, the nahar of the camel, can I eat the camel? Fantastic. So as long as the animal is allowed to eat, then the dead skin of the animal is allowed to be used as well. Regardless, how they killed Regardless of how they killed it. Oh. Exactly. Because we had the hadith of Maimuna where the animal was already dead. Right? So the Prophet said, why are you not using this? And she said, Ya Rasulullah, the animal is dead. The Prophet said that the meat is meta, but the skin is permissible to use. Yeah. What, yeah. Yeah, a side question. Why yeah. was she given a dead animal? I have no idea. I thought about that as well. <laughs> but a lot of these things, we don't understand why they would do that. <laughs> Maybe someone gave it while it was alive and it died. I don't know. Allahu Akbar. Um, do you know like uh, hard leather and couch leather? What's not commonly made up here? Most of it is synthetic now. Yeah. Everything is synthetic. Couches are usually synthetic. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Most yeah. companies are trying to like reduce their the costs cost and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, exactly. So if you're buying like real leather couches, you're going into like, you know, very high thousands. Most of the couches you say today are like a thousand, two thousand dollars. Those are all synthetic leather. So the this ruling doesn't apply to them because they're man-made substances. They're man-made substances. Moving on to the next issue, the issue of um, the feces and urine of animals. Feces and urine of animals. Okay. So now, with the exception of the urine of a suckling male infant, the scholars are in agreement concerning the impurity. Uh, and Najasa of urine and excrement of human beings. Meaning that any urine or excrement of human beings, with the exception of the young infant male boy, is considered impure. Is considered impure. Okay? That is where, where there is ijma. Where does the khilaf occur? Concerning the purity, uh, the purity or impurity of dung and urine of animals, the scholars are divided in their opinions on this issue into three groups. So dung of and urine of animals are divided into two categories. Animals we can eat, and animals we cannot uh, slaughter. Animals we cannot slaughter, okay? So opinion number one is Imam Shafi'i, Imam uh, Abu Hanifa, and his student Abu Yusuf. Dung and urine from animals are all najis. So any type of animal, regardless of you can eat it or not, slaughter it or not, their urine and their dung is najis. Shafi'i, Abu Hanifa, and Abu Yusuf. Main proof, Dung and urine of humans is najis, so this should apply to animals as well because they are considered less and they, their, their excrement is considered more filthy. Their excrement is considered more filthy. That is the qiyas. Statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud. He related that the Messenger of Allah went to answer the call of nature. He asked Abdullah bin Mas'ud to bring three stones. Abdullah said, I could not find three stones, so I found two stones and animal dung and brought them to him. He took the two stones and threw away the dung, saying it is impure, saying it is impure. So in the other narration, he said it is food for the jinn. Here he said it is impure. Okay, that is opinion number one. 
Opinion number two, Malik and Imam Ahmad and some of the Hanafi and Shafi'i scholars, dung and urine is not najis if you can eat that animal. If you can eat that animal. Proof of this. Anas anhu reported that some of the people uh, came and avoided, sorry, some reported that some people, um, okay. Okay, fantastic. So some people came from out of town and the Prophet ﷺ gave them camel urine to drink because they started to get sick. So the Prophet ﷺ gave them camel urine to drink because they started to get sick. And they initially refused and the Prophet ﷺ told them that this is pure. The Prophet ﷺ told them that this is pure. Now there's a slight weakness in this hadith. However, it has been accepted by the scholars. It has been accepted by the scholars. A follow-up hadith from this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not make a cure for this ummah in what is haram for them, in what is haram for, for them. The Prophet was also once asked, should we pray in the stalls of camels? The Prophet answered not to, because there are the, are the abodes of shayateen. The Sahaba then asked, should we pray in the stalls of sheep? The Prophet answered that they could. In the stalls of animals, there's urine and dung, and yet the Prophet said it was okay to pray there, meaning that it is not najis, it is not najis. Okay, so this was the proof for opinion number two, that the animals that can be slaughtered, then their urine and their feces is not considered impure. There's an opinion number three, I'm stating it just for the fact that you guys should know it, but this third opinion, like no one in the history of Islam has held this opinion with the exception of one scholar. And that is that all animal feces and urine is pure. This was held by Ibn Rushd from the Maliki Madhab. But like I said, no one from the history of Islam has held this opinion to the best of my knowledge. Strongest opinion out of the three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but there's an overwhelming proof for number two. Overwhelming proof for number two. Can we think of other examples? With the animals that can be slaughtered, then their feces and urine is pure. Can we think of other practical examples that would indicate this? Think of old time Medina. What's something that would take place commonly and regularly? Cow dung used for fire. Cow dung used for fire? And what were you saying cow dung used for? For fueling? No, no, sorry, for fertilizing. Oh, for, for fertilizing? Okay, you guys are way too advanced for me. Something even more simpler. What was the, where was the Prophet's masjid? It was just open space, right? What's commonly flying over? Birds. And we don't have any narrations of bird poop ever being cleaned up, right? That's one thing. Another thing, what used to commonly walk through the masjid? Which animals? Goats. Goats. <laughs> cats. <laughs> Goats is common as well, but not as common as cats, right? Abu Hurairah is constantly seen with cats, right? Cats are coming in and out of the masjid all the time, even till this day, you still find it. Yeah, there's not, um, you know, a any issue with this. There's there 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 nothing wrong with that. So this shows that the, the general ruling uh, on things, which we discussed last in our last halaqa, is that things are pure until you can prove them to be impure, right? So if you're going to say something is najis, you have to prove it's najasa through an explicit text, right? So same thing over here, the, the animals, dungs, uh, dung and, and, and urine, it is pure until we can prove its impurity. It is pure until we can prove its impurity. Wasn't the second ruling that if we can slaughter the animal, that animal's uh, feces are, uh, are like not nudges, right? Like, but we can't slaughter a cat. Can we? This is something we discussed last week. 
We discussed this last week. Or not last week, no, no, last halakha. What was the conclusion we came to? I can't remember. Inshallah, you can go back to it. But um, the, 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 the point being is that we want to go back to the foundational ruling over here, which is even bigger than what you're mentioning, the, the issue of the slaughtering, is that things are pure until you can prove their impurity, right? And the fact that Prophet allowed the cats to walk freely inside of the masjid and no one had to look after them or clean after them, it, it showed the, 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 the purity of that subject. It showed the purity of that subject. Now the last issue we're going to be taking for today before we go for the Adhan is the issue of um, semen and sperm and um, you know prosthetic fluid. What is the ruling on that? What is the ruling on that? So the first thing we want to look at are what are the types of fluids that will be excreted from the male private parts. Uh, you have three main fluids. You have number one which is called semen and this is the fluid that comes out just prior to, an, uh, to a man ejaculating. So that is the, the, it is a fluid that comes out that is see-through in, in color, sometimes thick, sometimes thin, but it can clearly be, be differentiated from the, the fluid which comes out with, with ejaculation, which is sperm, which is the second substance. So the first one is semen, second one is sperm, and then the third fluid is what they will call prosthetic fluid. Now in Arabic, you want to know the terms, mani is sperm, and then madhi is, the, is semen, and wadhi is the, is the prosthetic fluid. Prosthetic fluid, when does that normally come out? It will come out sometimes before urination, sometimes after urination. The way you differentiate it from urine is it will be more sticky in substance and usually there will be a very strong odor that comes with it. Usually there will be a very strong odor that comes with it. Now, default ruling that we will establish, anything that comes out of the front and back private parts is considered impure. That is the general ruling on anything that is, comes out of the front and the back private parts. Now, are there exceptions to this? Yes, there are exceptions to this, as we will come to see. So now, what we're, the, the scenario we're painting over here is a man has been intimate with his wife and some fluid has gone onto the clothes. Okay, what do we do with that fluid that has gone, gotten onto that clothes? By consensus, if that fluid is wet, it should be washed off. There's consensus on that matter. Now, the difference of opinion comes, what if that fluid has now dried off? What happens in that situation? Does it need to be washed or can it just be scratched off? Can it just be scratched off? So that is the scenario we are painting over here. And this can be applied to, you know, what if a man wakes up and he has a wet dream while he was sleeping, but the fluid has now dried off. What happens in that situation? So opinion number one, opinion of Imam Malik, Abu Hanifa, and one of the narrations from Imam Ahmad, that it is impure and the, the clothing needs to be washed now. The clothing needs to be washed. The proof for this is Aisha radiallahu anha said, speaking about semen, I would simply rub it off the clothes of, the, of Allah's Messenger وسلم, and he would pray in them. In another narration she, used to, she said, I used to, if it was dry, scrape it off and uh, uh, scrape it off his clothes with my nail. Those who say it is impure say that the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha states, Aisha removed it from the clothes of the Messenger of Allah If it was not impure, Aisha would not have had to remove it. If it was not impure, Aisha radiallahu anha would not have had to remove it. Opinion number two. This is the opinion of Imam al-Shafi, the more common view of Imam Ahmad, the view of Ahlul Hadith and the Zahiriyyah. 
and they said that the sperm is actually pure. And they use the same hadith that Aisha radiallahu anha said, speaking about semen, I would simply rub it off the clothes of Allah's Messenger sallallahu and he would pray in them. In another narration she said, I used if it was dry, scrape it off his clothes with my nail. Those who say it is pure say that there are still traces in the fiber of the clothing, even after rubbing it off. If Aisha radiallahu anha knew it to be najis, she would have washed it off and not just rubbed it off. And there are a couple of other hadith on this subject matter. Now, let's look at logical arguments. Logical argument number one, that semen is impure and needs to be removed. They said the substance that comes out, um, it puts one in a state of janaba, and since it puts one in a state of janaba, it should be impure. Number two, mani and madhi both come from the same orifice as urine. So it should still have the same ruling as urine, meaning that the internal pipes that it comes out of is the same one, therefore it should have the same rulings. Number three, Ibn Mas'ud and Umar ibn Khattab anhu are of the opinion that money must be washed off. So the scholars take their saying to mean that it is najis. Now, logical arguments that semen, uh, sorry, that um, semen is pure and does not need to be removed is that the comparison is made to sweat and mucus and that they are all pure substances even though that they come out of the body. Thus money is the same way and should be considered pure. Number two, humans are pure and we all come from money, so it makes money pure as well. Three, sperm is a substance that is often discharged and affects many people. Therefore, it is, its proper removal would have been clearly stated in hadith if it was najas. This is the concept is of, uh, of that, you know, the Prophet would not make something, un would leave something unclear due to the great necessity of it. And D, according to Ibn Abbas, that it is not impure. It is not impure. Pure. Now there's a, a long discussion that we can go on to, but is the, the time for the Adhan. Conclusion over here, the pre-seminal fluid that comes out is actually impure. It, Allah knows best, but it actually seems to be impure. The seminal fluid, which is the sperm itself, is something which is actually pure. The wadi, which is before urination or after urination, or if someone is sick, that is also impure. Now, one wakes up in the morning or one after intimacy finds that it's on their clothes. If it is wet, it has to be washed off. If it is dry, it is better that you wash it off. It is better that you wash it off. If you're unable to wash it off and you only have this one clothing, you're a bachelor, you haven't done laundry, it's all you have left. Time for Salah is running out at Fajr time. Scraping it off, there's nothing wrong with that. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Next week, we actually get into the act of wudu and ghusl itself, and that will be the last halaqa. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyan Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika shahadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.